Right, thanks Dan and uh, good evening uh, to everyone, uh, both here in the hall and those who may be uh, online with us tonight as well. So um, the topic we've got before us tonight is Russian military action foretold by the Bible, but we want to try and make this a little bit more of a, a workshop rather than just a talk, so that's why we've got the, the worksheet done there. So I just wanted to explain um, how this is going to work. So there's a few key questions at the top there and the answers to those will come out as we go through um, tonight so you may not get those answers straight away. Um, there's a space there for key quotes, there's about half a dozen key quotes and again you'll pick those up as we go along. Then you've got a table here um, and that links into the map um, on the back so um, you'll be able to work out what the nations are that we've got uh, mentioned in Ezekiel 38 and then you'll be able to put them on the map at the back there. So that all links together and then a final question there, what is the ultimate purpose of this action? So that's how the worksheet works, it doesn't sort of follow through step by step, you'll be able to uh, go backwards and forwards across that worksheet as we go through the night. Thank you Laura. Right, so Something to think about to start with. What if there was a massive military operation on the way and you were going to be impacted by it? How might you feel, do you reckon? How do you reckon you might feel? Yeah? Nervous. Yep, I reckon you probably would. Would anyone feel anything else, do you reckon? Frightened? Yes. Getting up there? Oh, yes. Terrified, there we go, the adjectives are building. Does anyone think they might want to know more about it? I reckon you might. I reckon that might be one way of perhaps um, allaying some of that terror that you might be feeling. And you might think, well, that might give me a way out. If I can find out more about it, I might be able to avoid it. Um, and so that's sort of where we're going to start going tonight because we're going to talk about a massive military invasion and we're going to find out more about it. So if we started to think of countries in the world in a military sense, what sort of countries might come to mind, do you reckon? Yeah? Russia, of course. Well done. Any others that you can, might be able to think of? Yep. America. America, that's right. Any others? Yeah? Japan. Oh, that's an interesting one. They've got some alliances going, so yep, they're starting to spend a bit more militarily as well. Any others? Is that a hand, Toby, or not? Palestine. Yeah, that's interesting. They rely on everybody else for their help, don't they? Well, they make their own rockets. We're seeing that a lot at the moment, aren't we? So, yep, that's another one. Who else have we got? Germany. Germany. Yeah, we'll find out a little bit about Germany later on. Oh, well, one more down the front. Israel. Israel. Yes, that's good. So there's lots of different countries. You might also think of Iran. Uh, as well. So um, you can certainly see that there's across the world people are thinking militarily and um, people in the audience here are able to identify some of who those countries are. And uh, it was interesting to see how many different countries got mentioned just then um, and how many of those we might see later on as we work our way through this, uh, this workshop. All right. But we had Russia mentioned, of course, and that's our topic tonight. So the first thing that we have to be able to do um, is to be able to identify um, Russia in the Bible. 
And so if we were to look at how we're going to go through our talk um, tonight, we'll identify Russia in the Bible. We'll have a look at what the military action is that's described. We'll have a look at the outcome of that. Um, and then we'll have a look at what Russia is up to today. Um, and then we'll have a look at the implications for ourselves. So this is where we work out, um, are we going to be impacted by this invasion? And what might we be able to do about it? Okay, so let's see if we can find out where Russia is in the Bible. Because once we can do that, we can then also identify where this military action is and we can try and get a sense of when it might happen. And then we can also extend that out and ask, why might this be in the Bible? And then we also need to consider, as we've said, what those implications are for us. So we'll move around a little bit through the Bible tonight. Mainly we'll stay in this chapter that Dan read for us, though, Ezekiel 38. Um, then a little bit towards the end, we'll look at some other parts of the Bible as well. Um, and so, yep, write all those uh, quotes down on your sheet um, and uh, watch out for where all these different countries come up as well. So if we were to read through the Bible, and we read a little bit of it tonight, but there's a whole lot more we could read, you wouldn't actually find the name Russia mentioned anywhere. You wouldn't, call, wouldn't find it mentioned under that name. And so to identify where Russia is, because it is there, we have to do a bit of Bible study and we have to do some digging. Um, and so I'm going to give a very big clue to start with, and that is that Russia is in here in Ezekiel chapter 38. I wouldn't expect you to think about all the 66 books in the Bible and all of the breakdown. That would take too long. So let's narrow it down and I'll say Russia is here in Ezekiel chapter 38. So Ezekiel, Ezekiel was a Jewish priest and a prophet and he prophesied in Babylon from 592 BC to about 570 BC. And he prophesied of events that were to come within his lifetime, especially events in the land of Israel, but also of events into the future. And one of those is this prophecy here in chapter 38. So let's um, read or begin to read through Ezekiel 38. Um, because here we will find Russia. So first of all, we want to read verses 1 to 3. So the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, set thy face against Gog, the land of Magog, the chief prince of Meshech and Tubal, and prophesy against him, and say, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I am against thee, O Gog, the chief prince of Meshech and Tubal. So think about what these verses might be telling us. So that term, son of man, that's a, that just means Ezekiel. That's what he's often called throughout the prophecy. Okay. Yeah, it's in the computer bag in the side room. Sorry, that's what I've forgotten about there. Um, that's all right. We don't need it right now. Um, so... Who can tell me whose message is being delivered here by Ezekiel? Who's delivering the message? Or who's, sorry, Ezekiel's delivering it. Whose message is it that's being given? Whose message? I have a, give it any thought. It's just on the other side there, Dan. Thank you. All right, it's God's message. Okay, so the word of the Lord, verse 1, came unto me. So it's God's message. Who can tell who um, God is speaking to, particularly? Who's the prophecy particularly addressed to? 
All right, go Israel. No, Ezekiel's the messenger. So God says to Ezekiel, I want you to give this message to someone. Have another go. Sorry? Go. Go, you see, go? Yep, that's exactly right. Somebody called Gog. So that can be a little bit confusing, isn't it? Because you've got God speaking to Gog, right? It's a little bit of a challenge. Makes it interesting when you're typing things up that you don't make a typo on that. So we've got God speaking to Gog. Now, where can, can we tell where Gog is from? Any clues? There might not be familiar names, but have we got any clues about where Gog is from? Anyone other than Ezra? Yeah? He's from Tubal. Yep, that's one of the places. Any other places? Okay, Ezra. Meshach, yep. And there's one other one there. Yep, Jude. Magog, that's right. So Gog is from an area which is known as Magog, Meshech and Tubal. Right, thanks for the tech support. (laughs) Not quite yet. That's all right. Um, Okay, now some of you, depending on the translation of the Bible you've got, you might have another place in there too which is called Rosh. Um, but we'll have a look at that in a minute. Now, can anybody tell whether God and Gog are on the same page in terms of, um, not literally, of course they're on the same page there, but are they thinking the same? Are they going down the same path of action, do you reckon? I can see someone mm, shaking their head over there. You're not quite sure, Rihanna, do you reckon they are or not? You're quite sure they're not. That's exactly right. Why might that be? What is it in those verses that tells you that it's not like that? Critical analysis. That's right. Yep. He said he's against thee, as it says in verse 3. So um, you can tell that there's going to be some antagonism here. So that really sets the scene. At the start of the prophecy, we have two opposing groups. Um, But that probably raises some more questions. Can we identify who Gog is? Um, Where are the places mentioned? The the children mentioned these three places there, but you won't find them on a map these days. So where are they? Um, Why might God be against Gog? We might ask what God is going to do. And we still haven't found Russia yet either, but we'll keep um, going on that. So just something to think about before we start to get into those questions. We have to be aware that the Bible in English, magnificent achievement though it is, is a translation from other languages. Um, In this case, here in Ezekiel, it's a a translation from the Hebrew language. And to understand the meaning behind the English, we have to get hold of some reference material and find out what the Hebrew means. Now, to do that, we can use um, reference works like a Bible concordance, uh, which is like a dictionary, or we could use a software program such as eSort, other programs are available, um, and we can also access the work of experts and, and others who've done study um, into these particular topics, and we can trace how the words and names have been used over time. So you do that with Gog, and you find out actually not very much. We find out he was a, a person in the Old Testament back in Genesis, I think it is, or First, First Chronicles, I think it is. Um, but there's not really a definition of what he, his name means. 
what we know about Gog is from the context. And so we see from the context that Gog is a leader. Um, and maybe the lack of any other information about him is deliberate to emphasise um, Gog as a leader. And we find there in verse 2, he is the chief prince of uh, Meshech and Tubal. Um, and some of you, depending on your translation, may have that as Prince of Rosh. Now, Prince means the one at the top. So he's the one at the apex. If you think of a triangle, the point at the top, that's the apex. He's the decision maker. Uh, and perhaps it's not surprising. But what about this word Rosh? This is where things are starting to get a bit interesting. Um, you'll find that most Bible translations have Rosh instead of chief. Now, Rosh is the Hebrew word, um, normally the word used for head. But here in Ezekiel, um, scholars say that the Hebrew chief, it's a proper noun, which means it's a name, which normally starts with a capital. And so here we've got Rosh being used as a name rather than just the word for your head. So what or where is Rosh then? So we go back to the reference works again, and we find a clue in the work of a man called Jesenius, and he published a lexicon, which is another word for a dictionary, in the early 1800s. And his research had uh, turned up the work of some Byzantine writers, and they wrote in Greek, um, and they wrote back in the 10th century, and they say that the word Rosh, here in Ezekiel 38, is the name of a northern nation, which Jesenius said was undoubtedly the Russians. So we're starting to find some references now to where Russia turns up in the Bible. But can we validate Jesenius a bit further? Because that might sound like that's kind of his thoughts on what this is. Is there any other evidence that we can find? And if we start to research into the history of Russia and look at what it was previously known as, we find that it was known as the Rus or the Ross. So we still haven't exactly got Rosh. Another historian, his name was Stanley Bocart. Um, he wrote in 1640, so we're starting to go back even further. He said, Ross is the most ancient name under which history makes mention of the name of Russia. Other historians have said the same, Edward Gibbon, George Vanadsky. Um, similar comments have been made by them. So Russ and Ross um, can sound very similar to Rosh, but are they exactly the same? So Jesenius, we know he was in no doubt. But what other evidence might there be? So Jesenius has some more information. And we've also got more information here in Ezekiel 38 itself and in history. So the first thing we find is that the Ross, the people Ross, were originally in the area of Asia Minor. So if you were to look at your, your map, um, Asia Minor is sort of the area of Turkey. Um, but they were pushed north by other forces. Um, and if we look at um, Ezekiel chapter 38, verse 4, uh, it says, I will turn thee back. So the idea is that they're out of their territory and they're going to be drawn back. Those same Byzantine writers that Jesenius quoted from said that uh, these people were living by the river Ra or the Volga. And the Volga is the longest river in Russia. So we're starting to get into the right territory. Verse 15 here of Ezekiel 38, it says, They shall come from thy place out of the north parts. Now, north parts could be anywhere north of Israel. I'll start at Lebanon and keep going. But um, if we start to look at other translations, and particularly there's a, a translation called the Emphasised Bible, written by someone called Rotherham. So everyone calls it Rotherhams. But if you're looking for it in a bookshop or a library, you need to look up Emphasised Bible. But he says that uh, it means the remotest men of the north. 
So you've got to go a long way, well beyond Syria, path through Turkey, up into Georgia and keep going. And uh, after that, it can only be Russia. In addition to that, the Greek word that Jesenius says was used by those Byzantine writers for these people living in the north, known as the Ross, is the same word um, used for Rosh in the Greek version of the Old Testament. And so whether we call them Rosh or Ross, these are the same people. And so if you're writing down notes, you need to be able to write next to Chief in Ezekiel chapter 38, verse 2, Rosh or Russia. So there we go. There is where Russia is in the Bible. We've had to go through some history and we've had to go through some language and some geography. But if you bring all of that evidence together, it points to Russia here in the Bible, here in Ezekiel chapter 38. And so we find that Russia is part of an alliance with Magog, Meshech and Tubal. And they're led by a character called Gog. So that's answered the first part of our question. That then gives us uh, a clue into what some of these other nations might be. So Magog, Meshech and Tubal, they're all names that are mentioned back in Genesis chapter 10 verses 1 to 5 who are descendants of Japheth. Now can anybody think who Japheth is? Does anyone know who Japheth is in the Bible? Thinking about had a couple of brothers. Toby? Exactly, one of the sons of Noah. So he survived the flood with all those animals. And from Japheth, and he had um, two brothers, Shem and Ham, um, and after they came out of the ark, God said to them, I want you to go off and replenish the earth. And that's what happened. And from Japheth descended essentially the European people. So that gives us an additional clue to how to identify these names that are mentioned. So we've got them in alliance with Russia, and we know Russia's up in the north um, of Europe. We've got, uh, so we, we need to be looking in that sort of European area to work out who some of these other people are. And so history tells us this, that Magog lines up with a country called the Scythians. And a couple of historians, Herodotus and Josephus, say they lived in the area from the river Don to the river Danube. So that covers a fair bit of the area of Russia and pushes across into Europe as well, extending into the vicinity of Germany. And so if we were to briefly note this, Meshek comes down to us as Moscow. Tubal comes down to us as Tobolsky over in Siberia. Um, and so we have Gog as the ruler or the head or controller, the one at the top of an expanse of Europe and on across Russia. So that's a big expanse of land. So what do we take away from those definitions? We don't know the individual who Gog actually is, but we know that that individual is a leader, and we've identified who is being led. It's an alliance of nations including Russia and Central and Eastern Europe. So we saw also that God was against Gog, one of the questions that we could ask is why. Now, it may be something as simple as the fact that they're just on different paths. Um, God's got his purpose and Gog has a different purpose to that. They're not in alignment and therefore they're going to clash as God brings about his purpose. 
So what then is Russia's military action? So we saw that God um, is going to instigate this action. It's in verse 4. I will turn thee back and put hooks into thy jaws and will bring thee forth and all thine army, horses and horsemen, all of them clothed with all sorts of armour, even a great company with bucklers and shields, all of them handling swords. Now you've got to think when Ezekiel wrote. Can anyone remember what I said about the time that Ezekiel was prophesying? It doesn't matter if you can't. It's about 592 BC, so a fair while ago. And back then, bucklers and shields and swords and horsemen, they were the top of the tree when it came to military forces. These days it wouldn't be like that. It'd be more like this that I've got on the screen. But what it's saying there is not so much that Gog's going to come rattling down with light cavalry or something like that. It's really saying he'll come down with a whole lot of military equipment. So there's a big army involved here that... that uh, Russia or Gog is going to bring down from the north. But not only that, we find in verse 5 and 6 that he's got an even bigger alliance. Persia, Ethiopia, Libya and all of those have got state-of-the-art military equipment as well. Goma and all his bands, the house of Tagama of the north quarters and all his bands and many people with thee. So what is the Russian plan? I think it can be very... Uh, quickly summarise down into three bullet points. Get a massive military and political alliance together. Once you've got your alliance, invade Israel. And once you're there, take a spoil. That comes out um, a few verses later in verse 12, to take a spoil and to take a prey. So very simply, that is the Russian military plan as described here in Ezekiel. So now we're just going to move on and have a look at what these countries line up as. Some of them we've already seen, and that's helped us to identify um, Russia. But you can hopefully... Um, I'm not sure if I'm standing in the way there. Um, but Magog works out to be Central and Eastern Europe. Rosh, Russia, Meshek, Moscow, Tubal, Tobolsky. And then the other nations that we haven't looked at yet, Persia, that's Iran. Um, and uh, Iran is certainly um, in alliance with Russia at the moment. Ethiopia is Sudan... Libya is Libya, Goma is France, and Tagama is Turkey. I'll let you write those down and then we'll jump across to the map and see where all of those nations are actually located. Everyone got that written down? Are we, are we right to jump across? No? Still some heads shaking. Let people write those down. Those of you who've got wide margin Bibles, this might be something you might want to type up on the computer at home and turn into a Bible insert. If you go and see Uncle Manny, he's got special Bible insert paper and you can make up an insert and put that in your Bible. So it might be a little project. We all good to move on? All right. So there's our map that you've got on the back of your worksheet, and you can see where all the countries are. So you've got Israel in the middle. You've got Rosh at the top. I'll put that in bigger font because Rosh is the leader. Um, and so you've got Goma, Magog, Rosh, Meshach, Tubal across the top. So that's the north parts that we've already mentioned, the people from the far north. 
Then directly north of Israel is, is Tagama or Turkey. So you've still got um, attack coming from the north. But look at those other countries as well. You've got Libya off to the west, Ethiopia down to the south, and you've got Persia off in the east. And so Israel is effectively surrounded by this alliance that's being led by Gog um, and which uh, is effectively led by Russia. So that's just interesting to keep that in mind as we um, look through here, just to see the extent of this alliance. Uh, and you start thinking about the military capability of some of those countries. Someone mentioned Germany and, and then you've got France allied there in the uh, European Union. You look at what Iran is doing now, trying to develop its um, nuclear capability. Um, Russia has uh, really sped up and, and really increased its military capability. So um, there's this massive force surrounding the nation of Israel and they're going to come down into Israel. And I think it's also interesting at the end of verse 7, uh, it says there, be thou a guard unto them. And so even though they're all in alliance, it's, uh, it's Gog who's at the head. Be thou a guard to them. And so the invasion of Israel then is described in verses 8 and 9 and also um, in verses 15 and 16. And they both use the description of a cloud covering the land. And that gives a sense of the size of the invading force. It'll be like a, just, the land will be just completely covered. And so essentially, uh, if we were to say that um, what's the, uh, the, what Russian military actions are foretold by the Bible, here they are. It's the invasion of Israel. But we get more than that. We also get the motivation. We get the why. Why are they coming down? Um, God, of course, is directing it, as we've seen. But what are the nations themselves thinking about why they want to come down into Israel? Um, and we get that um, in verses 10 to 12 and in verses 14 as well. Um, and it really comes down to verse 12, to take a spoil and to take a prey, to turn thine hand upon the desolate places that are now inhabited and upon the people that are gathered out of the nations which have gotten cattle and goods that dwell in the midst of the land. So the people that are gathered out of the nations, that's Israel, that's a completely different topic, but um, we've just seen the uh, anniversary of the establishment of the State of Israel and as they were regathered um, following the Second World War. Um, and so we can definitely see that it's Israel being referred to here. But the alliance that comes south, they're after a spoil and they're going to take cattle and goods and uh, silver and gold and really they're after anything that they can lay their hands on, silver and gold um, and cattle and goods mentioned there at the end of verse 13. So there's a lot of value that clearly that's, that's up for grabs here. It becomes a great spoil. And so what sort of spoil might this Gog-led alliance be after? Now, Gog may make the excuse of coming down into Israel as some sort of protector. They may be deciding that they're going to protect the Russian Orthodox Church's assets in Jerusalem. They do have some form when it comes to protecting their own citizens. Um, but I think the real motivation is in verse 13, where some who, in fact, are opposed to Gog, they say, are you come to take a spoil? It's as though they recognise why Gog and the Allies uh, are really there, why they've really decided to come. 
So the nation of Israel, as you probably know, it punches above its weight uh, in the technology and medical space. Um, they've even been, des been described as a, a start-up nation. At one story that I always remember when I was previously working in, in the health industry um, and we were buying these uh, little, they were called a pill cam, and it was like a little tablet with a little camera and some lights in it and you'd swallow it and it was like a... Uh, it followed through your stomach and they could check if there was anything wrong on your insides. And that technology was Israeli technology, which had originally been developed for the nose of a missile so they could see exactly where it was going. So these little things that come out of Israel, it's pretty amazing when you start digging around, especially in that health technology space. It was really interesting seeing what the Israelis could do. Um, and so they're certainly regarded and known um, for that. Um, They've achieved a lot in agriculture as well. We find mentions of that um, here in, in the chapter as well. Um, but this on its own is, is probably not likely to be a major prize for a country like Russia. Um, so what else might be there? And I think one standout possibility at the moment is that the natural gas fields um, that have been discovered off the shores of Israel. And just, uh, I'll just put up some comments um, about what these natural gas fields are like. The natural gas fields discovered off Israel's coast since 2019 have brightened Israel's energy security outlook. The Tamer and Leviathan fields were some of the world's largest offshore natural gas finds in the last decade. The Leviathan could produce $230 billion in gross domestic product to Israel over the life of its exports and more than 20 years of domestic supply. But here's where it starts to get interesting from a Russian point of view. December 2018, Cyprus, Greece, Israel and Italy signed a memorandum of understanding to build the world's longest underwater natural gas pipeline to supply Europe. And it's going to run via Cyprus and Greece to Italy. Um, there'll be high infrastructure costs and construction cannot be, uh, begin for several years, but it could go online in 2025. The project has full support of the EU and aims to produce gas at a price to rival that from Russia. 25% of the EU's gas comes from Russia. More recently, this is just last year, Israel's cabinet approved a multinational accord to lay a pipeline that will facilitate the export to Europe of natural gas found in Israeli and Cypriot waters. And so there's just some points about uh, the, uh, the natural resources of Israel, some of the largest natural gas fields in the world, and they're looking to pipe that gas into Europe in direct competition to the gas that's supplied from Russia. Now, I can't say for sure that that's the spoil that uh, Russia is coming down for, but it's a suggestion um, which would certainly be attractive to Russia. If they can get hold of this uh, resource, um, they're going to be able to protect their own economic situation. So that's just something to think about um, in terms of what the spoil might be. It's certainly something of value um, and I think that's uh, one possibility. So what is the outcome then of this military action? Well, we find in verse 13 that it is opposed by another alliance. Sheba and Dedan and the merchants of Tarshish with all the young lions thereof shall say to thee, to Gog, art thou come to take a spoil? And it seems like maybe that's all they do. Um, but there's certainly, uh, Gog will find some opposition when they get there. So who might this alliance be? So there's three na uh, nations mentioned there. One of those is Tarshish. 
And the nation of Tarshish, I'll put it to you, is Great Britain. Um, and there's some evidence there um, for why that is the case. They also are descendants of Japheth. Um, they're known as a maritime power. They are located in the west. They're a source of silver, iron, tin and lead. They're a colonial power, which is interesting. It shows that they have other nations following them. Um, and as it says uh, in verse 13, um, they will say, are you come? They're a nation that um, has a presence in the Persian Gulf already. So the references are there. We won't look them up, but you might want to be able to write those down as well. Um, so Tarshish, that's uh, Great Britain here in verse 13. So who are they allied with? Well, there's the rest of the table. Um, and so you've got those three, hopefully you've got three blank spaces left on your sheet. So you've got Sheba and Dedan, that's Yemen and Saudi Arabia. Tarshish as Britain. And the young lions um, who are uh, allied with Tarshish can be regarded as the Commonwealth nations. Uncle Dez got his hand up. Sorry, yep, okay, got a typo there. So that's that one there. Yep, sorry, that is a, a typo. So if you've written that one down, um, yep, that should be um, Ezekiel 27 as the source of silver, iron, tin and lead. Thank you. Right, so that gives us the rest of our nations, and there is where they go on the map. And so you can see in the red there we have the Gog-led alliance, and in the blue the Tarshish-led alliance. And it looks fairly out of balance, doesn't it? Even if you take into account the Commonwealth nations, which is Australia, Canada, South Africa, places like that, they're miles away. Um, that red alliance there, the Gog-led alliance, um, certainly has the power on paper. Right, so that's the initial opposition, but there's far greater opposition is triggered by this military action. And we find that um, as we get further on in Ezekiel chapter 38... Um, particularly verse 18, we find that God starts to react to what Gog has done. It come, shall come to pass at the same time when Gog shall come against the land of Israel, saith the Lord God, that my fury shall come up in my face. And then you might have picked up, as Dan did the reading, um, the great shaking that is going to follow. Um, and you know, verse 20 is very descriptive about the, the damage that will occur. And then it says, I will call for a sword against him throughout all my mountains, saith the Lord, and every man's sword shall be against his brother. So God is going to begin to retaliate against what Gog is doing. And he says, thus, at the end of verse 23, thus will I magnify myself and sanctify myself, and I will be known in the eyes of many nations, and they shall know that I am the Lord. But then in chapter 39, we find the actual defeat of this Gog-led alliance. Um, 
Verse 3, I will smite thy bow out of thy left hand and will cause thine arrows to fall out of thy right hand. Thou shalt fall upon the mountains of Israel, thou and all thy bands and the people that is with thee. I will give thee unto the ravenous birds of every sort and to the beast of the field to be devoured. Thou shalt fall upon the open field, for I have spoken it, saith the Lord God. And I will send a fire on Magog and among them that dwell carelessly in the isles, and they shall know that I am the Lord. And so we can see this defeat uh, of Gog that uh, occurs here and um, quite graphic. You can, uh, those uh, people who enjoy a bit of uh, perhaps military action and reading about some of this kind of thing can imagine the bodies strewn across the ground and the birds pecking them. It's not a particularly pleasant image, but that's what's going to happen here. So if we were going to summarise the outcome of Russia's military action, we could summarise it as... Gog loses and God wins. That's the outcome of the military action that uh, Russia has instigated. So from a reading of Ezekiel 38 and 39 and some Bible research, that's the outcome. We've identified where Russia is, we've identified what the military action is and we've found out how it ends. Is this really likely? Is, is Russia really going to invade like this? I just want to have a look at the current state of things in the Middle East just for a few minutes, just to get a sense of uh, perhaps how imminent this might be and how likely this is as well. So the Russians are already in Syria, just to the north of Israel, uh, and they've been there since 2015. The Russians also have the means the motive and the opportunity for an invasion. Now, when it comes to a court of law, if uh, the court is trying to prove the guilt of a party, uh, when it comes to a crime, they'll look for the means. Did the accused have the means to carry out the crime? They look at whether they had a motive and they look at whether they had an opportunity. And really, all of those three things need to come together for someone to be found guilty. So what about Russia and its move into the Middle East to invade Israel? Do they have means, motive and opportunity? Now, before we look at that, I just want to say that regardless of whether we think they've got that or not, this prophecy will still happen because God has says it will. But um, when we've seen other prophecies that have been fulfilled um, and they've been fulfilled not always as we thought, so there's no reason why this one wouldn't be fulfilled. But right now, it is looking all the more plausible. So do Russia have the means? Yes, they have massive military might. Do they have a motive? Possibly the gas fields are uh, a motive. Do they have the opportunity? Well, they're right there on the border of Israel virtually. They're there in Syria um, and they do have past form in entering areas to protect people. And the Middle East always seems to have something just around the corner that requires international intervention. And maybe we've started to see that again in the past week um, where... Things have heated up in Israel again and we're starting to see um, what some people are starting to be concerned about is civil war um, and a lot more disruption actually within Israel itself than we've seen um, in previous uprisings there. So yes, God has said that this will happen, um, but we can see the circumstances building up to show that it's close. Just want to look at things from a Russian point of view. Um, I just want to just show some slides quickly on how Russia views the Middle East. And 
These headlines I've, I've picked up from sort of over the last three years, 2019 through to, to now, um, and you can see the view um, that's been building over that time, um, the way that Russia sees the Middle East, and uh, they increasingly see themselves as a permanent presence in the Middle East with the military capacity to go with it. So this one's from 1st of January 2019, why Russia is back in the Middle East, and then it was uh, headline, Moscow to the rescue. And um, we can see there that the centre of it all is Putin. Um, the 2015 military intervention in Syria um, gave perhaps the biggest single boost to Putin, burnishing his credentials as a decisive and effective leader who delivers what he set out to achieve. In this case, it was the survival of the president of Syria. But it also positioned Putin at the nexus of the Middle East's overlapping conflicts, leveraging Russia's influence far beyond Syria's borders. A little bit later in 2019, Putin had gone from a pariah to Middle East power broker. In the Middle East, the transformation is stark. Four years after Moscow launched its military operation in Syria, Russia is replacing America as the key player and power broker in the region. From last year, Russia calls Israel the problem in the Middle East and defends Iran and its allies. From last month, Russia's expanding footprint in the Middle East. As the US recedes from the Middle East landscape, Russia will emerge as the central figure in the regional cauldron and is likely to offer the best hope for peace and security. This one relates to the conflict that's going on in Israel at the moment. Russia's role in the Middle East is concerning for Israel and the US. For Israel, however, Russia is a high-priority national security challenge, the report notes. Russia imposes a set of operational and strategic concerns stemming from the potential impediment to Israel's freedom of operations in Syria and Moscow's strategic relations and cooperations with Iran. Who can remember what nation in Ezekiel chapter 38 is Iran? Hopefully you've all got it written down. Jude? Persia, there you go. So we can immediately see here um, what was predicted in Ezekiel 38, that Russia and Iran would be in alliance, and here it is mentioned in our media um, just a few weeks ago. Okay, that one comes slightly later. Um, this is the other one that I just wanted to uh, have a quick look at, um, and this is from the 14th, so only from a few days ago. Um, those of you who get Andy Walton's Weekly World Watch possibly have already seen this, um, but I really wanted to point this out. Um, during a meeting with the Russian Security Council, Putin... Sorry, I mentioned Putin a few times. Who can tell me who Putin is? Toby? President of Russia, absolutely. Powerful figure and certainly a leader in the world. So during a meeting with the Security Council, Putin said that the proximity of the violence in Jerusalem and the Gaza Strip to Russia directly affects his country's agenda on security. I would like to ask my colleagues to comment on the current situation in the Middle East. I mean the escalated Palestinian-Israeli conflict. This is happening in the immediate vicinity of our borders and directly affects our security interests. 
Putin is quoted as saying by the Turkish state-run news agency Anadolu Agency. Now, you might see in the small text at the bottom that the southern border of Russia is 2,808 kilometres, or 1,745 miles, from Israel. And yet, Putin is saying the violence there is in their immediate vicinity. And I think that that is saying, as Andy says in his um, weekly World Watch update, that Putin views Syria as his territory. And uh, he's extended his reach now all the way south. Um, and that's how he sees himself. Um, that he's there in the Middle East to control things and he sees that area of Syria as his territory and that's why he can make a comment like that. So what are the Russians doing from a military point of view? We've had a look at what they're doing politically. Um, here it is, uh, this is from March. Um, Russia building new permanent military base in Syria. They've started to build a permanent base in the eastern suburban area of Homs. And the new base, which will be located on a hill 600 metres above sea level, will comprise a 780 metre airstrip. So there's the Russians in Syria, not just there on a temporary basis, they're in there now building a permanent military base. But not only that, they're also building a floating dock off the Syrian coast. The Russian Ministry of Defence is working to expand its naval base in the Syrian port of Tartus, following the major expansion of the main Maimin base located in the Latakia countryside. And that, again, is just from the last week or so. And so we can see that the Russians have moved into Syria, they're establishing permanent bases there, and they see that as their territory. And so we look at that, and that's just... You can bring all that up just from a, a Google, um, and you can see how over the last few years they've been changing their attitude to the Middle East and how they see themselves there. And having identified Russia there in Ezekiel 38, we're now starting to see from their actions in the world now the plausibility of what Ezekiel chapter 38 says. So just in the last few minutes, I thought we need to try and identify when is this likely to happen. Now, in Ezekiel 38, um, the the way that the battle or the, the timing of the battle is referred to in two ways, in verse 8 and in verse 16. In verse 8 it says, in the latter years, and in verse 16 it says, in the latter days. Um, and so this term, the latter days, is the clue that we need to have a look at. And the use of the term latter days provides a link into other parts of the Bible which gives us more detail about what this battle in Ezekiel 38 will be like. So this is where that section on your sheet that says key quotes, you might want to start writing some of these down now. So we're looking for this term, the latter days. And there's the quotes there. So Daniel 2 verse 28, Daniel 10 verse 14 and Hosea chapter 3 verse 5. And... Uh, Daniel chapter 2 is something that some of you might know about. That's the Nebuchadnezzar's dream with the big image made out of all the different metals and the stone comes down and smashes the feet. And uh, in the interpretation of that, um, we get verse 28. There is a God in heaven that revealeth secrets and maketh known to the king Nebuchadnezzar what shall be in the latter days. And it goes all the way through to the return of Jesus Christ to the earth. And then in Daniel chapter 10, verse 14, we get it again. Now I am come to make thee understand what shall befall thy people in the latter days. So this is an angel talking directly to Daniel. So thy people refers to Israel. 
for the vision is yet for many days. And that then leads into chapter 11 of Daniel, where we have these two alliances, the king of the north and the king of the south, which interestingly roughly lines up with the alliance that you've got on your sheet. Um, And so it leads then uh, into that description of that battle as well. So we're into the latter days. And then in Hosea 3 verse 5, Afterwards shall the children of Israel return, so that bit's happened, and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and shall fear the Lord and his goodness in the latter days. So that bit hasn't quite happened yet, and that also links into the return of Christ. So we can see that the latter days is a term that's pointing towards the return of Jesus Christ to the earth. There's then another term, which is the day of the Lord. And that starts to come out um, in some other verses as well, which also begin to talk about um, these battles that are going on. So the first of those is Joel chapter 3, verse 14. And that's a, a good key quote to write down, Joel chapter 3, verse 14. Um, verses 9 to 17, really, of Joel chapter 3, provide a picture of war and of nations coming down to a place called the Valley of Jehoshaphat for war. And uh, this is something key just to note down. Um, Verse 12, which mentions the Valley of Jehoshaphat, that's where the war is going to occur. That Valley of Jehoshaphat is between Jerusalem and the Mount of Olives. Um, And some of you uh, may be familiar with pictures of that. You stand on the Mount of Olives and and, look straight across to Jerusalem. It's not very far at all. And that's where this battle is going to occur. And it's going to occur um, as a prelude to the day of the Lord. Zechariah chapter 14 verses 1 to 3 is another uh, good one to look at there. Behold, the day of the Lord cometh, and thy spoil shall be divided in the midst of thee. Now, this has a good description of the battle, and I thought this is one that we might actually turn up. I know you're all going well on your worksheets, but let's actually turn up Zechariah chapter 14. And we'll just read the first three verses. It says, Behold, the day of the Lord cometh, and thy spoil shall be divided in the midst of thee. For I will gather all nations together against Jerusalem. Ah, so there's an echo back to Joel. Uh, against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken, the houses rifled, the women ravished, and half of the city shall go forth into captivity, and the residue of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then shall the Lord go forth and fight against those nations as when he fought in the day of battle. And we've got some echoes there of Ezekiel chapter 38, um, of all nations being gathered together, um, and God going forth and fighting against those nations. And then finally, we've got Revelation um, chapter 16, verses 14 to 16. And while we're turning up quotes, let's have a look at Revelation chapter 16 as well, because this is another really good quote um, that links up as well. So Revelation um, chapter 16, verse 14. Um, It's got some symbolism there. It talks about some frogs. Um, And it says, they are the spirits of devils, verse 14, working miracles, which go forth unto the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. 
And then there's a warning. Behold, I come as a thief. Blessed is he that watcheth and keepeth his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. That's Jesus Christ talking there. And then it says he gathered them together into a place called in the Hebrew tongue Armageddon. And so we've got um, this day of the Lord now matching up with the battle of Armageddon. And we could get more into definitions there. We haven't got time. But the thing to note from those verses that hopefully you've all written down is that we have a consistent story across all the accounts of the battle. It occurs on the day of the Lord or around the time of the day of the Lord. It involves an international coalition. It happens in Israel and more specifically it happens at Jerusalem and we find that God fights for Israel and wins. Right, so those verses we've looked at have expanded out on what we saw in Ezekiel chapter 38. So we find this consistent theme. This is how this battle will work. And so when you then start to look at the verses we've just looked at and look at the other things that go on around them, this is where we start to get to the relevance for us. And I think this is really important to look at because there's often been wars in the Middle East and apart from the petrol price going up, it doesn't really impact us too much. And this is where we think, okay, what else in those verses that we looked at did we get told about what happens in the latter days? And I think one of the key ones is there in Revelation 16 that we've just had a look at. Um, Revelation is words given by Jesus Christ to his um, good friend, the Apostle John, and John wrote them down in the same way as Ezekiel wrote down the words that God gave him. And so we've got... Um, the words of Jesus as we read Revelation 16 and in verse 15 is the key. Behold, I come as a thief. Blessed is he that watcheth. And so Jesus is saying that I'm coming back. And when's he coming back? He's coming back at this time of the battle of the great day of God Almighty. And so when we start to see these things coming along and, and developing, um, as we've seen in those quotes from the media, and we think, okay, the day of the Lord must be getting close, we can see there that it's the return of Jesus Christ to the earth that is also becoming close. Um, we find also that day from Joel chapter 3, God will be revealed and will be a protector of his people. And let's just finish um, going by going back to Ezekiel um, chapter 38 again. Um, and we see a couple of other outcomes, or one other outcome described twice here in Ezekiel chapter 38. The ultimate outcome of this battle. Ezekiel 38 verse 23, Thus will I magnify myself, this is God talking, remember, and sanctify myself, and I will be known in the eyes of many nations, and they shall know that I am the Lord. Now at the moment, um, a lot of people out there in the world don't believe in God, and yet here this military action is going to prove to people that God is real, and it's going to show people what God is capable of. Across in chapter 39, verse 7, it says very similar words. So will I make my holy name known in the midst of my people Israel, and I will not let them pollute my holy name anymore. And the heathen or the nations shall know that I am the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. And so the upshot of uh, all of this military action, uh, it's not only the defeat of Russia, but it also means that God becomes known to all of the nations of the world. And so it coincides with the revealing of Christ to the nations and the Jews recognising him as the Messiah. It's a complete shift in the world order and it ushers in the kingdom of God, which is another subject again. 
And so the outcome of this battle instigated by the Gog-led, Russian-dominated invasion of Israel is that all nations will know about God and they will know what he can do. No one will have any more excuse to deny God or to ignore what he asks of mankind. And so for ourselves, the question is, what does God ask of mankind? And by extension, what does he ask of us? The day of the Lord is coming when God will be revealed. And what is our standing going to be in that day? Are we going to be looking forward to that? Or is it going to be, as some of the kids said right at the start, nervous, scared, terrified? How are you going to be feeling? We've seen what the military action is. We've seen what the outcome is. We've seen what it's going to lead to. How are we going to view that? And uh, that's really what we need to think about if we're looking for a personal lesson and a personal takeaway from what we've looked at tonight. What will our part be in the new world order that this Russian action will trigger? And that's the next step for us and the reason why Russian military outcome is in the Bible and is relevant to us. And so we've been through tonight, uh, we've identified Russia in the Bible, we've seen what military action it will take, and we've also seen the outcome of that action and why it's relevant to ourselves. And so if you're looking for something to take away, realise for yourselves the implication um, of what's going on and what Russia is going to do. And so for something to look to uh, for the future, what action might you take? God's revealed his words to us in the Bible. This is his invitation to us. Uh, and we should seek help in continuing to understand it. Mm -hmm.